Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to Impact Theory. Impact Theory. Impact Theory. Impact Theory. Impact, baby! Hey, everybody. Welcome to Impact Theory. Today's guest is one of the most accomplished race car drivers of all time. In his extraordinary career, he's already clocked over 700 starts in NASCAR's top three divisions, making him currently the longest tenured active driver in the Cup Series. And it is no wonder he's had this kind of longevity. From the start, it was clear that he has something special. Racing before he could even get his driver's license, in quick succession, he racked up major wins and even established himself as the youngest driver to ever win the NASCAR Featherlight Southwest Series title. And from there, he was catapulted into the big leagues where he continued to prove himself to be a force of nature by quite literally posting wins in each of the different NASCAR series in which he has competed, as well as winning races on every type of track that NASCAR has to offer. He's won a staggering 31 times in the premier division of NASCAR, including wins in the Daytona 500 and Coca-Cola 600. He's made 12 appearances in NASCAR's playoffs, including six consecutive appearances, and he's won an overall series championship, cementing his legacy as one of the greats. And if all of that wasn't enough, he is one of only a small handful of drivers that have ever attempted double duty, a grueling double race day that goes from IndyCars to NASCAR. In the first leg of this behemoth, he did so well that with just one Indy race to his name ever, he managed to snag the Indy Rookie of the Year title. So please, help me in welcoming the future Hall of Fame driver and ferocious competitor, Kurt Busch. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> What's thank up, you, man? my friend. Thank you. Welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. Dude, happy to do it. I love meeting people that really take winning seriously, that have a champion's mindset. And I want to know, what does it take to actually fucking win at the level that you win? <laughs> uh, drivers can't do it on their own. There's a team aspect to it. But, you know, the spot that I'm in in my career now, in my 40s, being that manager, being that motivator, and finding ways to bring more out in people, I didn't even realize I was doing that when I was younger, just with my tenacity and my youthful exuberance of pushing hard. And I think it gets down to just the simple fact of each day is an opportunity to win something. And you go out there, whether it's a practice day or a qualifying day, even a day of prep um, or at my own house or wherever it may be, it's just pushing hard each and every day. And I think that that's the the work ethic that was instilled in me by my dad early on. So what does that look like in reality? Is it up at dawn? Is it working out? Is it like, how do you really like, 
when the you know the rubber meets the road. Oh, there I you go. Nice. You that was not intentional, but there it is. <laughs> when the rubber meets the road, like what are you? What does pushing hard look like? It's it's not knowing boundaries. Whether you're up at you know three to go travel somewhere, and then you're on track, or uh, if it goes into business dinners, you know past 10 p.m. some nights. Just you're on call 24/7. Uh, I think you know, I grew up in a fun town. I grew up in Las Vegas, Nevada, right? And the city that never sleeps was part of my backyard. And you see the, a different life growing up there. And blending that into racing, it, it's the same way. You just never know what's going to happen around the next corner. And I think it's just making sure that you're available at all times, no matter what happens. Mm. One of the things that certainly I have experienced in my own life and looking at people that really do extraordinary things, there's an element of hunger. Like you just have to want shit. And so few people I find, it's not that they don't have the talent, it's that they really don't want it badly enough. Um, and that is definitely a soapbox that I have mounted many a time in my life to preach from is this idea that, look, if you really want to accomplish something extraordinary, you're going to have to want it so badly that you just, you forego everything else, you push through everything else, you go to a place where people are actually worried about you. Now, I'm, I'm not somebody who's terribly familiar with NASCAR, but before I bring on a guest, I always dive way into their world to see what they're really about. And so I had the good fortune over the last like 48 hours to watch your entire career unfold. What I found really fucking interesting is you start out sort of as this um, hot-blooded, very fiery, um, getting big wins, but definitely you clearly have that hunger to win. And you've managed to keep winning throughout your career, but the way that you've gone about it, obviously it's matured, it's become maybe more tactical. I definitely don't want to put words in your mouth. What I really want to understand is what was more useful? Like, was there, was it like the, the hunger was so raw and so real in the beginning that it seemed to compensate for not being as experienced? Is that valuable? Are you like, Jesus, thank God I finally got away from that? No, it really is about just tactical skills. No, that's a great summary and a great understanding of my career that you saw with different highlights and different moments. And to circle back around to what you had talked about leading into that question was the fire mm -hmm. and that desire to succeed and to be almost on the edge of insane, crazy. My story was in college. Mom was against racing from the beginning. Like she's got it. You got to go to school, get some grades. And you know, she graduate because it it's dangerous. She didn't like it, it was because it was dangerous. But my dad raced, and there was always a car in the garage to touch or to be part of and to help. And he always put me to work. Uh, you know, he loved free help, and I was his best free help. But for for me, I struggled in college. Why did I struggle? Literally, the books were on the back seat of my Volkswagen Bug as I was traveling around trying to find more races. So of course I'm struggling in school, flunking out, and everybody kept saying, man, this, this racing thing, you gotta, you gotta pack it in, get focused on life. That's how bad I had it. It was three jobs, 24 seven, flunking out of school, and I got a lucky break. When you think about how much you wanted to be good at that, is, was it a conscious effort to get excited about something that your dad was into? 
Um, did that come naturally? So I, I find that people break into sort of two camps. You've got people that found something early that they really love and, and they grow hungry for it without any sort of real sense of what made them hungry. And then quite frankly, the other bucket is usually just people that feel like, oh, I don't love anything like that. And there are few people that understand how malleable that trait is. Is this something that you just got early? Is it a trait that you had to build in yourself to stay hungry, to keep pushing through, certainly in the early days, but even through the, you know, the ups and downs of your career? You've, you've been so successful, you could have retired long ago. So how you keep pushing now, is that just come naturally or do you build that in yourself? I, I believe the way I was raised in a blue collar family where we had to work hard to obtain the money that was available for racing or frankly, just for my parents to pay their bills, we had to work hard. And my dad was a self-employed tool salesman. And I was, you know, probably 10, 11 years old in charge of shipping and receiving. You know, then I was the one that washed the truck when it got done on each Friday. Um, it was all of these lessons that my dad was instilling in me that I didn't know. I just thought it was chores. I just thought it was part of being the family business. And looking back around on everything, it was lessons that my dad was teaching me. And when I started to race for my first time, which mom was still, you know, she was against it. She was like, here's a baseball bat, baseball <laughs> glove, go play Little League, it's a lot safer. Clarity was all around me. They say the hardest thing to do in sports is to hit a fastball. Watching your race footage, that did not seem true to me. Um, having people bumping you at 200 miles an hour, battling for a centimeter of space at that speed uh, with your life literally on the line seems a lot harder. If you had to give three or four ingredients that make for an amazing driver, what are those ingredients? I think uh, courage is an easy one that uh, you can recognize. And, and tell me exactly, courage to what? It's to block out the fear of, of this dying? is dangerous. Okay. You know, we're going 200 miles an hour. Do I know that? Yes. Do I have that courage inside me that says that this isn't dangerous because I've done my checklist of my safety, you know, for the car, for myself, the tracks and where we're racing. You know, there's tracks in Europe where they have guardrails that are at an awkward angle and you know, there's places that just don't have the, the, the infrastructure and the upkeep to keep a place safe to race. And when you have that courage to block that out, that's when it helps you make smarter decisions. And you know, I think the, the number two thing that creates a successful motorsports driver is that, that intuition to be able to not necessarily predict the future, but to be able to absorb immediately what's in your peripheral vision and apply it to make a pass or to get the speed out of the car. It's having that, that feel. Third thing that I think is very important to succeed in motorsports is to have that mechanical inclination of how a car works, to understand suspension, to understand the aerodynamics. That's that mechanical side of it to be successful. And in all honesty, the fourth element is what I would call timing and luck. But luck is defined in, in, in my theory by preparation meets opportunity. Mm.
If you're not prepared to meet that opportunity, luck's not going to be on your side. And that's where a lot of good drivers, male, female, younger, older, they're just not able to find that right timing element to match with their luck, mm. to make it to the big time and to be able to maintain it like, like I've been blessed and privileged enough to do for 20 years. So let's go back to courage for a second. So I find that one uh, pretty interesting, the ability to compartmentalize, to recognize the fear, but somehow put it in its place. How do you put it in its place? I mean, you've crashed enough that I would understand if you were gun shy, right? I mean, that's to, to have experienced it, to see it as one thing, you described it as getting in the ring with a heavyweight and having him punch you in the head as hard as he can. And I thought, even one that you walk away from sounds like it sucks. So how do you, even with the successive number of times that you've put yourself in that situation and it doesn't work out, like how do you manage, how do you still compartmentalize? And, and I'm, I'm asking this question very much because there is someone watching right now, I promise, and they don't know how to compartmentalize that. So even just to give a quick preamble to make it accessible to people, this, what you do in the car is exactly what I had to do with speaking. I used to have crippling anxiety. I could not get up in front of a small group, let alone a big group. So I had to find a way to stop what I call rehearsing the failure. And so that was one of the ways that I put that away. I just, the second my mind tried to go to it, I would stop it. I would do what they call pattern interrupting and, and I would literally put that away. If I had to fucking imagine putting it in a box and closing the lid, like I would do whatever I needed to do to literally compartmentalize that. But I'm not traveling at 200 miles an hour. So how do you compartmentalize? I think the key is, is I'm not stupid enough to step into a ring with a heavyweight fighter. You don't, you just don't do that. I'm, what am I, 150 pounds, am I flyweight, welterweight, I don't know what division I would be if I was a boxer. But my point to this is you don't start at the heavyweight division. You know, I, I met Ty Murray, a professional bull rider, uh, probably about 15 years ago. And we got into some moonshine. We were talking. You know, he was at a NASCAR race, and he's like, "Kurt, you're just you're just not ready to be a bull rider." I'm like, "Well, I didn't ask to be." <laughs> and and I go, well, "Wait, what does it really take?" And he says, "You know, you don't just start on a big bull. We'll get you on a, a little cow. But I first need you to do ten pull-ups right now. I need to check your core strength. I'm gonna go put you on the balance beam." And we're gonna go through a gymnastics course to check your balance, your footwork, your ability and agility to stay focused when that animal's underneath you. And it's that preparation, it's that process to prepare and to be ready. And so I'm sure some of your first speaking engagements weren't with tens of thousands of people watching, it was maybe 30. It was still rough but you got through those, right? That's the preparation that all of us in any sport go through that's behind the scenes is you work your way towards the top. You just don't start there. So preparation has come up a few times. Um, I'll tie it to intuition. Tell me if you think that they really are linked. So a lot of times, so I didn't have business instincts when I started. So I had to accept that I could build them, that I could prepare enough, I could repeat exposure enough that I would actually 
get to the point where I was training my intuition so that it would become something where I would see something and know mm, there's something not right here. And then I could dive in, once I had the feeling, I could dive in and assess why that was there. Whereas in the beginning, I didn't have a feeling. I have no idea, is this right, wrong, or indifferent? So it seems true to me that preparation, part of that repetition pattern is actually training your quote unquote gut instincts. You don't have to be born with them. Um, does that ring true to you or do you feel like, no, 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 this was something I was born with and the preparation is something else? I think it's a factor of, of all of it together. Uh, you're born with it, but you have to continue to practice it. Uh, you're only as good as the people that you surround yourself with. You really don't have anything more to prove. Why do you keep going at something dangerous? What, what drives you now? For me, uh, I still love it. That, that feeling of putting on the helmet, pulling the belts tight, and outsmarting the competition. Um, it's, it's that work ethic that my father instilled in me when I was young, and you know, you're right, yes, there's nice trophies on the shelf. Uh, there's been huge moments in the sport that I'll never forget. There's been great bonus checks that have come in. And, uh, but to be a, a veteran right now, in the sport of NASCAR. Uh, to be over 40 and to have a, a youth wave coming in, you know, I look at it as, okay, if there's a bunch of new guys being pushed in and, and team owners are heading that route, well, they don't have this many years of experience. I've already got a one-up just by taking the green flag. Uh, you know, the, the opportunity to give back to this sport that has given me so much, I feel like I'm in a safe environment and confident enough in myself to teach young engineers, crew members, marketing guys, everybody. I feel like I have a PhD in motorsports from these 20 years of all these categories. And one big inspiration for me though was my trips to Walter Reed and Bethesda Medical Centers for our military, seeing those men and women who've given the ultimate sacrifice and who have sustained injuries and have even lost their, their lives and their loved ones through you know, the protection of this country. I have a ticket giveaway program that I do for our military and I buy 100 tickets to every NASCAR race for our military guys, for our men and women who have served and who are currently serving. And I've always wanted to be that guy that anybody could root for no matter what your background, no matter where you're from in the country or in the world, uh, that Kurt Busch is a dependable racer that we can choose that's going to get us a top 10 uh, finish today or have a shot at winning. And that, that desire is still there. It hasn't changed. That's really interesting. So you said something that uh, if people have context in your career, they will understand it immediately. But if they don't, so you were known as the outlaw for a long time. You had a contentious relationship with the media. I think that would be a very fair uh, characterization you talked about sort of being given the black hat to wear, but that you never felt like that was really you. What was it like dealing with that where there is you the real person and there is you the, the persona, which is somewhat being created by the media. You definitely had a hand in it in terms of how you presented yourself, but how do you deal with a persona that doesn't feel like it matches you? How did you navigate those waters? That, that was... That was a tough spot. There was a few tough spots in my career with, for me, I feel like I wear my emotions on my sleeve. I'm a pretty easy guy to read. Do you value that in yourself? 
Do you think that's a good thing? I do. It's the only way that I know. And when I try to steer into a direction to learn a, a different process, I felt like I wasn't me. Mm. And when I had a rough spell with the media early on, it was because, well, I'm, you guys don't know the full story, but you're showing something different. And you learn that racing isn't necessarily just about getting that checkered flag. There's an entertainment value to it. But as a kid from Las Vegas that just had the blinders on for trophies and wins and doing well at track, I had no idea of the pageantry of what goes into all of this. I had no idea. And when, when I had my first run in with the media, so to speak, and everything was sideways, I said, you know what? Calm down, just ignore all this, just go drive the car. Just just take this as a as a lump, take this 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 medicine. And when I turned it into the next season and went there and just focused on driving, I won the championship. And I got to do the big FU. Told you guys, I'm here to stay. I did it my way, and I won. And at the same time, I got a nice contract offer behind the scenes to switch to a, a different team. And that team had a big value of the formal look with how they dressed, how they talked, how they acted. And to race for Roger Penske, a legendary team owner in all of motorsport, I mean, that was, that was a chance of a lifetime. And when I started to race for him, and started having these meetings after meetings and the politics and the process and this blue collar kid with, from Vegas wasn't learning and adapting quick enough, that's when I fell into the trap again. And I, I, just, I just took myself out of that, that position. I wasn't winning as often. I wasn't in championship form as often. And it was because I was trying to be somebody that I wasn't. And that's when the outlaw moniker came about because I just, you know, I'm out, I'm going to do this my way. And I actually went back to like a D level team, like pretty low end team in NASCAR and treated it like my rookie season, but with 10 years of experience and worked my way back up to a top team. I put my own self on a program and it's been the most fulfilling portion of my career to work my way back up and now be with a top team a top endorsement with Monster Energy, and to race, to have shots at a championship and race wins now, being 41, I had to go through those moments with the media and to learn and to become more of Kurt Busch. That's really interesting. That notion of building back up. So a lot of entrepreneurs will call and say, yo, I've done this now, I get the game. So even if I had to start from the bottom, I could really build my way back up again. That really does feel true. I certainly feel that way about myself. What did you actually do? Like, what did you actually bring to bear on a team? Because you've said that um, part of the four things, you've got mechanical being a huge one. So if your car isn't there, it's going to be very tough for you to pull off wins. So how did you pull off wins on a team that was that just didn't have the capital to give you some of the toys that the other competitors had? Yeah, for one of the teams that I raced for, um, their team was based in Colorado. And... 99% of NASCAR is based in the Carolinas. And here's this one team. And after every race, 
I'd go to Colorado. I would sleep on one of the crew members' couches. I'd go to the race shop with them at 5 a.m. I would be involved with every portion of the car, every department, and make sure that the communication was as in-depth as possible because I felt like that's what was missing on the big teams was the politics of, well, this lead engineer says this should be done at the wind tunnel, but the wind tunnel doesn't necessarily correlate to the racetrack in the way that you think that it does. Mm -hmm. We don't need your driver feedback, blah, blah, blah. And so I started doing that in just more depth, going an old school approach and took that, that team. They were ready. They were ready on their own, but we made the playoffs as a one car independent individual team. And then the phone rang from a team in North Carolina offering me that same feel of come and be involved with our team because we like your mechanical approach. We like your leadership approach. And we know that you still have that drive and that fire to compete and to win. You mentioned your leadership style. What is your leadership style? How did you help that team galvanize and, and do so well? Honesty is, is key for me. And the clarity that you speak with, it, it can't just be a, oh, well, I'll check into that. that. That's the worst. I hate, oh, I'll get around to that. Uh, well, uh, let, me, let me, I'll get back to you. I hate follow-ups to follow-ups. That, that's the worst. And when it can be clear and honest, those are the people that I like working for me on my team, uh, whether it's with the race team, whether it's the marketing team, uh, the licensing on, on selling items around a driver's identity. It all has to be clear and it has to be honest. So you give them the honesty, you tell them, I'm assuming some of it is, this is your role, this is your job, you've got to do it. I'm assuming some of it is bonding, engaging with them, being there. Um, and I suppose some of it is going to have to be you performing your best on the track and delivering results. One thing that I find interesting when I look at leaders that I really admire, people that, especially in times of war, people that lead from the front, that's always super interesting. And there's no doubt that you as the driver have the most pressure on you and you're the one that's really putting yourself at risk. How do you leverage that? Like, would you ever, yo, I showed up today and you guys didn't? Like, do you feel that you earn sort of the right to, to push people a bit more when you're out there killing it? How does that work in your mind? For me, I think being a, a judge of character is important and knowing people's background and how they've arrived at their position. An engineer from Purdue University is gonna act different than a collegiate guy that's your pit crew member that jumps over the wall who's going to be different than somebody that's from up in the northeast you know where they might have had a tougher upbringing i feel like it's key to bring the best in somebody's background and what they're good at i want to talk about competitiveness so i was surprised that you didn't list that as one of the key ingredients for a driver you seem to have it in fucking spades you raced against your I just own. assume you got to have it. Buddy. <laughs> yeah, well, the funny thing is I didn't have it growing up, so that was definitely something I had to develop. I had to first recognize that it had value and then put myself at risk because the reason I didn't like competition was that meant that I could lose, and I thought that meant something in terms of my worth as a human being. So I was really... Um, 
outwardly saying that com competitiveness is stupid. I don't know why people are so, you know, Neanderthal about it. Like, uh, what the fuck? Like I was super judgmental about it. But the real truth was I was afraid if I competed, I would lose. And I didn't want to lose because that would make me feel badly about myself. So finally, once I realized, whoa, there's actually real power in here. Once I embrace being competitive, then it brings out aggression. Aggression is one of those things you usually hear in a negative connotation, but I will tell you right now, before I speak, one of the things that I say, my little mantra as I get in my version of a car, is that I'm gonna be aggressive. I'm gonna be um, raw, I'm gonna be completely present, and I'm gonna be aggressive. And embracing aggression, embracing like, I'm here to fucking win. I'm not here just to play. I'm not here to touch one life or whatever it is that people say, oh, as long as I impact one person like I've done, fuck that. Like, I'm here to be the best of all time and I'm holding myself accountable to that. And my thing is, how you believe, how you think, all this stuff, it's gonna impact how you behave. Now, how you behave ultimately is the only thing that actually matters. But when I look at you, racing against your dad and beating him, racing against your brother and sometimes winning, sometimes losing, but really fucking competing, man, and really going after people and really trying to win, that there, there is looking at you and, and one day they will look back on your legacy and they will talk about what you accomplished and I promise that is going to come up. Like this was somebody who played to win and that some people will say, too harsh, it's too much, it's too close to obsession, whatever. Dude, I honestly, looking at it, seems to be one of the like absolute secret ingredients. Your desperation to fucking win is why you take the chances and the risks and do the work and all of that. To put a fine point on it, I'll say again, what was it like to compete against your dad? And so early with my racing, it was family fun. It was a hobby. It was dad and son time, father son time. It was perfect. And did he always let you win? No, no. He was he was as competitive as as, as ever. So even when yeah. you were young, he's like, I'm going to win. Yeah, I mean, when I played little league, I played to win. When I played Papa Shot, I played to win. If I was bowling, I played to win. And my dad is a national champion in this racing division that he was racing in. And I beat him in my second timeout on the track. It, we didn't go to the track when, when we were kids to make friends. Mm -hmm. And it was to bring home that trophy. That's, that's the different mindset, I think, that some people went to the track and it was social hour. It was just a fun, okay, yeah, we're, we're just going to do this because little Johnny or Sarah wants to drive a car. We went there to win. And that competitive top 1% effort carried with me from this division to this racing car to this. And when I made it to what you would call like the AAA ranks of NASCAR, like right there, right below the pro level, that's again where I'm just pushing through like a bulldozer, like you're saying. And that aggression ran into the good old boy South. And that's where I had some struggles of being a West Coast kid, of just hammer down, ask no questions, take no prisoners. And then you get to this good old boy system out there and they're like, hey, you need, you need to simmer down a little bit. Because when I got to the top and kept winning, I just felt like I was gonna continue to keep going, but I didn't realize I had made it to the top. This is it. 
And now I'm going to be around these people for more years to come. I just kept not burning bridges because every bridge I left in place for my little brother to cross. You know, a lot of the race teams that I raced for, Kyle jumped in and kept going. I was just blazing this trail, going straight to the top with that aggression and that tenacity. And I still have those, but they're muted in different categories with the way a lot of the business operates at this level. How do you deal with loss? How do you deal with failure? What do you tell yourself? What does that mean to you? How do you build back? I can tell you more vividly in detail about the losses than I can about some of the wins. And the reason is, is because, yes, of course, there's more losses, but there's a reason that really jumps out at why the second place happened mm. or why there was a DNF from a wreck or you know, even a 22nd place finish because of a poor performance, you can really get into detail on what hampered the effort to win that day. And those are the lessons that you have to apply when you get back to that track again the next time or quickly move forward for the next week. And that's some of the brashness that I had early in my career was if four weeks go by and we've been in the same trench, I'm already out of patience two weeks ago. There are some team owners or some mechanics or team personnel that are with you, but they have more of a, a balanced political approach to it. And then there's some that are just like, you know what, let's let six months go by and then we'll reevaluate. In, in racing timelines, that's way too long. You got to move quick. And that's, that's what was a lot of my not balancing the professionalism with my tenacity or talent from behind the wheel. What do, you, what do you plan to do in the next phase? Like at some point, I imagine you will say, okay, I'm gonna step away from driving. Um, what do you wanna see the next phase of your life? Will it be equally competitive? Is there something that you already have on tap that you wanna do? I'm sure I'll be competitive. Uh, I married a beautiful woman who is competitive in her own right. Um, my wife, Ashley, plays competitive polo. And she has her horses, her team, and travels. And she has the same thing that I have. It's called helmet-itis. You put a helmet on, and you change into a different person. I love her so much, and the way that she competes, uh, that's an element of life that's out in front of me. I don't have a set plan. Again, I feel like I have a PhD with this motorsport arena that I've been in for the last 20 years. Is it going into coaching young drivers? Is it going into commentary to expose you know, fans and to teach them my version of NASCAR and to try to draw in more of an audience you know, from that side of it? You know, the phone rang the other day about sports car racing over in Le Mans. Um, you know, I've got a bucket list item to race in Australia and, and different spots around the world. Um, I don't know what, what's around the next corner but I know that there's so many opportunities that it will be fun. It'll be organic and it'll be because my heart and my soul told me to do it and then I'm not trying to be somebody else. Mm, that's cool. People that want to learn more about you, they want to engage with you, where should they go? Um, my social channels are all uh, at Kurt Busch. So Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. It's funny how you know, my, my veteran fans are all on Facebook you know, the true hardcore are on Twitter. And, you know, I love art. I took a bunch of photography when I was in high school. 
and the Instagram feed is more of the youth. Mm. And it's a, it's a perfect blend of who I represent as Monster Energy as a sponsor, um, Team Chevy, racing for Chevrolet, and just having the connections between my old cars and my new cars. And I still believe that it's just being honest and being out there as an organic racer. That's, uh, that's where people can get connected. And then I have my website, KurtBush.com. I love it. All right, with all that you do and the risks that you take and how hard you push yourself and your team, what is the impact that you want to have on the world? Well, that's a heavy question. You know, I, I think the best way to answer your question and to help tie in everything we've talked about today is that it doesn't matter who you are, where you came from, hard work and, and perseverance is, is an ingredient the courage to continue to push forth when you don't know uh, what's around the next corner or when people are telling you that you might have to quit or you might have to set this aside and, and focus on your studies or focus on your job. I think I'm a, I'm a very good candidate for leaving an impression on people of just work your butt off, learn from your mistakes and put your boots on tie up your bootstraps and get out there in the world and you can make it. I think that's an easy way to answer what I can leave on this world is that anybody can make it out of wherever they're from. It's a pretty cool thing to leave behind. Guys, this guy's career is extraordinary. And when you see how much work he's put in and how long he's been able to maintain success, it really is pretty breathtaking, especially when you factor in the fact that he's doing it at 200 miles an hour. Speaking of doing well over a long period of time, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Kurt, my man. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. And if this content is delivering value to you, please go to iTunes, go to Stitcher, rate and review us. That helps us build this community. And that is what we are all about right now building this community as big as we can to help as many people as we can deliver as much value as possible. And you guys rating and reviewing really helps with that. All right, guys, thank you again so much. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care.